Alan Woods, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Dale. Um, I'm good to go. All right, let's, to go. let's get this going. We've talked about it for, for a couple of years, probably, about getting you on and talking. And we did do a written interview that we posted on BMX Weekly about probably three or four years ago now, wasn't it? But, Shit, yeah, yeah. But I think it's definitely, um, we, we need to get you on the podcast, and I'm excited to do it. Uh, I know you're not going to say it, but you really are the godfather of British BMX, you know. I think... Uh, well, well, you know, I don't know if I really deserve that title from what happened then. Um, you know, the weird thing is, it's hard for me to have that sort of perspective because I've, I've never stopped doing this, you know, and really what I do every day is the same thing that I've done every day since I was 16. So it's hard for me to be able to get that outside perspective. You know, I haven't been, a lot of people have been away from BMX for 30 years, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and now they're, then looking back on it and going, dang, you know, that was the best time of my life, you know, and I can see that. And, yeah, if we could turn our clocks back to a time, we'd go back to Kellogg's or, you know, ABA National in Phoenix or something, you know. Uh, but, yeah, so it's hard for me sometimes to have that historical perspective, although obviously with, you know, with the vintage motocross thing and us starting the old school thing really in the U.K., I'm kind of proud of, you know, getting involved uh, and starting that at the time that we did, which was, you know, 2000, really, because before that, there wasn't really any old school racing or anything. You know, it existed in America, you know, through vintage BMX, but there wasn't any like riding of the bike. Uh, So I was quite proud of getting everybody together, you know, yourself and, you Mm -hmm. know, Death with her and Tim, and to get all those people almost pre-internet, really. Yeah, I'm quite proud of that. Uh, really looking uh, looking back on it, and there actually is a video we had made of that event, which is on VHS. I need to get it converted, and um, oh, I haven't even got a copy, uh, so I need to get a copy before I can get it converted and put that up. So, um, so yeah, I, I suppose I am quite unique in so much as you know, I've not been able to get another job, you know, in all that time. Mm-hmm. I mean. I- I, I, you know, I, I, I love all the stuff from when I started, and I think you see it on Facebook. Everybody likes to go back to the time when they got into BMX and and how, how they founded and stuff. But what I, I love about anything about you is you was in it way before me. You was at the start of England and the history and the teams and and, and everything. So let's uh, maybe rewind a little bit back. And for those that don't know, I know a lot of the you know our friends internationally, uh, uh, you know, haven't didn't pay as much maybe attention to what was going on in the UK, but. Um, tell us about those earlier days in, in BMX in the England and yourself and your family and uh, how you, how it all kind of got started because this is stuff I love to hear about as well. You yeah, know? yeah. Well, I started racing motocross age eleven. Um, had a Harem 100. 100. Uh, my dad had a car garage, so we had you know we were able to do that. And really, I'm so um, lucky uh, to have been involved in that sport at that age. So I raced, you know through the intermediates, seniors, and probably about 1978, I remember being at a race in Cumbria and somebody had a, um, a magazine. It was either BMX Action or BMX Plus or one of the others, and there was a picture of some guy on the inside back cover doing like a, uh, a tabletop, just a fully flat tabletop. You've probably seen the picture. It's been shared a few times. And there were side hacks in there as well. And I was always interested in, you know, bikes as well. We had like, you know, those kind of tracker things with the big handlebars. And I had a, um, a wheel king, 
um they were like uh, a motorcycle but like a bicycle like with suspension and forks and everything i think they were like made in italy um so you know i was really into the the bicycle thing as well so when i saw that bicycle and motocross i'm like holy shit you know this is this is for me you know but there wasn't any bikes you couldn't really buy them it didn't really exist and i know that you know um uh, conversing with uh, with Gerrit and what was happening in Holland, that they actually had BMX in Holland in 1978, didn't they? Right. Yes. Yes. I I, I think you it was around. Know, that time. Uh, it's only a couple of years, but it, it was they had a huge jump on us. Um, so you, yeah, you you couldn't you couldn't buy bikes, uh, you know, or anything. And then I think 77 we started to sell spurs at the track because you would go to a race and then you'd foul a plug. You know, these are all you know, 100, 125, 80cc, two-strokes. So they'd foul plugs like, you know, two or three times in a day and you couldn't buy a spark plug because my dad had the garage and we had an account with NGK. So we sold NGK spark plugs and uh, Bell Ray oil. Um, yeah, uh, 100 to 1 uh, mix ratio. I don't know what that was about. But anyway, so from that, we put some money back into that and some money back into that. And we just used to sell. We had the van painted up in like fox colors, uh, red, yellow and, and orange, you know, really cool. And no one else was selling at the track. It's a big kind of thing now, isn't it? Like a franchise thing to sell at the races, whether that's, uh, you know, motocross or BMX or whatever. But we were one of the first to actually do it. And, you know, so we'd make like 20 quid and I put 20 quid back into the business. So over time... I guess that, you know, I had accumulated some funds and then we saw this thing in the magazines. Also by then, you know, we were doing JT, Fox, I mean, Fox Air Shocks, you know, like Fox, the company that make, you know, shocks for mountain forks and stuff for mountain bikes. They were the next product that we had. And because schoolboy bikes, they were too uh, heavily sprung for the lightweight riders. Um the air shocks, obviously, you could adjust them, you know, like just bloody air shocks today. So my dad used to drive to Barnard Castle in the northeast and just load up with these shocks. And, dude, they were expensive. They were about £235. I know this because I found an empty box recently. Uh, no shocks in there, unfortunately. So we put all that money back into the business and back into the business. And then we did JT and DG and Oakley and all these other brands which, guess what, were really relevant for BMX. So when bikes first came into the country, Pook Murray's uh, were the first thing that we probably had after uh, after Grifters, the first proper BMX bike. Uh, well, I say proper BMX bike. They were like probably just over £100. They were like pre-rally burner, really. Uh, and you could just buy those in department stores. I remember them having them in Wigan in like where Debenhams was, you know, just in the window. And they had, um, what were those bloody wheels? Um, and they did it. It's another brand of wheel, not Skyway. I can't remember. Acorn? No, probably Acorn came later, so, didn't it? Like, uh, they were either, you can either get them in alloy or plastic. Someone will be like, you know, punching the computer right now, won't be listening to this going like that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so they were, they were, they were kind of terrible. You know, there was single stem with an ashtabular crank and everything. And the frames came with a lifetime warranty. And, and then other friends that we got to know who became on the team, you know, Dave Arnold and Craig Burroughs and all those guys, they all bought them and they were the first bikes that they had. But they, then we had Moto One, which was another brand. And we bought those from a guy in Peterborough 
who used to import yellow Yamahas because Yamaha YZs were yellow in the US and then they were white uh, for the rest of the world. So, of course, we all wanted to be like uh, Bob Hanna uh, and, you know, Rick Burgett and, um, you know, everybody else who was American. And he imported them. We bought American Yamahas off him. And he went like, yo, we've got these new things, these BMX things. And we were like, yeah, man. And they were like blue and yellow or red and yellow. And we had a couple of each and sold a few of those. And then the same guy then got bikes off Malcolm Jarvis, Amoco. And we were going to buy them from him. And then I think he sent me like a catalog and he said, contact your local importer like Amoco. And I'm like, yeah, we'll do that. And they were like 20% cheaper, weren't they? So we bought them from him. And I remember ordering like, yo, I'm going to have a Mongoose Motormide because that thing looks rad. And then I remember ringing him up and going, Oh, can I just have a super goose instead? You know, I think they're going to be, t- I think those are going to be too heavy. So then we had, you know, then we had mongooses. But the thing was, we didn't have to send off to California to get, you know, a JT mouthguard because you know what? We just had them in stock. So we had, you know, Simpson helmets and JT pants and JT gloves and Oakley goggles and Oakley grips and all this really cool shit. So when you look back, in old magazines and you've got someone with like a, you know, a protect with no visor and a pair of bloody whatever, you know, we were all really tricked out because fortunately we already really had the stuff. So people either came from that skateboard side, you know, and we skated too, but we were more moto, um, you know, so, you know, Ruffle and the people from ROM, they were much more, um, you know, skate orientated uh, and obviously, again, this was at a time where freestyle didn't exist, and BMX was one thing. It was a bit of racing, a bit of riding around the streets, a bit of riding a bowl if you had a skate park that hadn't been demolished yet. Um, so they came from that side, and we definitely came from the uh, from the moto side. But looking back on it and looking at you know the aesthetics and the uniforms and how everything looked, it was really, uh, we were really um, lucky to have that resource, you know, in-house, basically. Yeah, and I even remember, and, and I was a couple of years later, but we did the same kind of thing. We got a lot of stuff from motocross shops. Uh, we got, I, I had fox pants, and we would go looking for mouth guards and stuff and, <laughs> and visors. And, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, they just was limited BMX shops, you know, even, you know, 81, 82 so, yeah, for you guys, obviously, even uh, the, probably the pioneers of that, right? Yeah, so we were lucky. And then I think I must have got a magazine. In fact, I did get a magazine, and it was Bicycle Motocross Action, and it had John Cruz on the cover on a red line. You know, and that shit was so dope, wasn't it? You know, oh, the yeah. beauty were just like, still today, you know, you know, red line had it. And, in fact, talking about aesthetics and design <laughs> is this a sign of age i don't know but you look at any of that stuff the patterson uniforms obviously the robinson uniform se obviously is an, an easy one dang they were so good they still are but, but that's what i mean it, it's but they you couldn't you look at i was looking at, i won't even name them because i don't want to i don't even want to say but i saw a picture of somebody recently <laughs> <laughs> And the shirt just wasn't any of your riders or anything. Don't worry, Dale. Right. <laughs> Association with Dale, Dale Holmes Racing. Dale Holmes. 
But I mean, I'm just like they're disgusting. I know what you mean. It's like watching a World Cup. It's like I'm like you watch logos just everywhere. You don't even know who to ride for. And then, yeah, I'm I'm trying. I promised myself I wouldn't be negative. (laughs) Shorts, shorts, knee pads, black shorts. A shirt you can't read a single logo on it. I'm looking black shorts, man. Like. It should be, you know, it should even be banned, shouldn't it? The UCI should say, yeah, you can't wear skimpy, uh, you know, thin um, shirts, you know, like, you know, track. You've got to wear black. But also, you can't have, like, any more than, like, you know, 10 logos on your shirt. <laughs> and you've got to wear pants. Anyway, don't. I'll be, I'll be saying, and yeah, you've got to wear flats. So, yeah, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to. It's not going to turn into a... Um, a Tim March, bless his soul, interview in that in that regard. So we got the fir- very first magazine, and uh, I just went like, I'm going to write to all these companies. So I had a typewriter, and I <laughs> wrote to like every company front to back, seriously. And there was a lot of ads in that time. And I remember, I remember signing the letters, uh, you know, Alan Woods, president, <laughs> <laughs> and my dad saying, "Yo, you can't." You can't say that. I'm like, yeah, I've had a letter back off one of the companies, and the guy said he's the president. So I'm, <laughs> if I'm not the president, who's the president? So right. That was that was quite funny. So we wrote to all these companies, you know, GT, CW, JMC, you know, really every company that existed in about September 1980. So every company that had an ad in BMX Action, you know, they will have had a letter from me, 16-year-old, 16, 16 uh, you know, kid. And um, CYC wrote back, you know, they used to do frames, they used to do the Stormer, and they were also a distributor. And as did uh, Chuck Robinson, which obviously that um, worked out, changed our life in, in, in a way, really. And I don't know, maybe a couple of accessory companies, I can't remember, but really, yeah, it was those two. And they Chuck wrote back and said, yeah, we've, we've, we've got frames and we'll send them to you and whatever. And then we went to, he sent his frames and we, well, yeah, so there was, <laughs> so yeah, there was Amico and they did Mongoose, obviously, and and they, and they were huge. And I can't say um, enough about what they did for BMX in the early days, because obviously, you know, they had a product, but you couldn't use the product because there was nowhere to be able to use it. It's like having, it's even worse than having, you know, I don't know. Nowadays, we've got street riding. So if you had scooters nowadays and skateboards and there were no skate parks, it wouldn't be that impactful. But if you had a BMX bike and you didn't have a BMX track, you know, um, it wasn't worth anything, was it? So they wanted to make a business out of it. So they had to make BMX tracks. So on one hand, you probably heard all this before, but between them and, um, you know, a couple of other people, um, you know, Alan Rushton and those guys, they kind of, you know, and David Duffield too, they got together and put a program together to try and, you know, make tracks. And obviously the Jarvis's built the track in Chatham in, in Kent, which is the first track we ever raced at. So there was those guys. And then there was Gecko, who did a bunch of other brands, which I guess were the other companies that I wrote to that didn't write back to me, the bastards. Uh, <laughs> have been, I don't know, Redline, Kuhara, Racing. You know, there's... If you look back in old, you know, um, magazines, uh, yeah, uh, official BMX, you know, the ad and ad, it was a half page ad, uh, with all the bikes. Yeah. It might've been like a, a, 
a two-page ad, but just running horizontal across the bottom half. Yes, of the I love that and ad. It's in a ra- really well photographed, actually. Yes. Uh, so they did all those brands, and then I was on a mongoose, and we did that race at Wallaby, uh, which I won just like motocross, you know, just over some bloody field. It wasn't even a track, elastic band start gate, and. They were like, okay, you won this race. Should we send you a Kuahara? And I'm like, yeah, Kuahara. And, and again, there's another flipping timeless uniform, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, man. So anyway, I'm like, yeah, that'd be good. I'd be on factory Kuahara, you know, with the you know the green and the yellow. I'd be like, yeah. And then Chuck wrote back and said, yeah, we'll send you some frames. So me and my dad drove to Heath Road to collect the frames. I don't know why. I, I'm sure there was a door-to-door service with her freight. <laughs> you excited, wanted to get them in the boxes. Yeah, you know, but we were like, yeah, we'll go to Heathrow. So we drove to Heathrow to the air freight agent, slept in the van the night before. Me and my dad, and my dad must have been in his bloody 50s or something that I don't know. Picked up 11 frames, I think it was, and we drove them back up and we built them up into bikes. And, yeah, then that was it. You know, we had, we had, a, uh, we had a team and there, was no, um, and there was no plan and that would have been February that had been February 1981. So we went from Mongoose to Redline because we did ride Redlines through uh, through Gecko, which later became Freewheel and Leisure. Um, and then the Robinson thing. And then at Easter 81, we went to California, which is the second time I went. First time was the year before because we had this deal with Fox. Could we, you know, they were, I was like, you know, can you not get me a bike? And they were like, yeah, I don't know. And I think my dad rang yeah, Roland Swimbank, who, who ran Fox over here, and said, listen, we've spent this much money with you last year. I think he cajoled him to do that. But we turned up, we, we flew to LA and went to uh, Northern California. We raced to Hangtown. They gave me a, a pro mechanic and a box van for oh, moto. Wow. This. So, yeah, how rad was that? And uh, we, did, uh, we did two races. And I actually had Donnie... The people who know Moto from that period, I had Donny Cantaloupe's Fox YZ125. He just signed to factory Yamaha, so they had his bike there, uh, which which the uh, with Fox Fox on and all the trick stuff. Yeah, so that was uh, that was awesome. That was 1980. So backtrack a little bit. So fast forward again back to uh, 1981. So my mum, my dad, uh, Dave Arnold, who's uh, you know uh, a, uh, a lifelong friend, um, went out there. And we got the the pictures. Chuck picked us up from the airport, and I'm not joking, Dale. We raced every single night: mm-hmm. Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday morning, and Saturday afternoon. Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon. <laughs> I mean, every track in Southern California. So I can't even remember them: uh, Devonshire Downs, uh, Van Nuys. Uh, Monrovia, Monrovia. It was the first one we did actually in a park, beautiful setting. Um, Ascot, Canyon Country, you know, insane. And and although we'd gone over there and we were kind of like big shot, we'd only ever done one BMX race in our life, which was at Chatham, and it was like bloody sub-zero temperatures, and I had cramp. So we kind of went out there as sort of like, you know this hot shit, you know, from, from England. But in fact, we actually hadn't done any races. So, um, you still there? Yeah, yeah, still, sorry, the other phone's going, you can carry on, Alan, still listening. Uh, so yeah, so we hadn't done any races, so we met Chuck, and I remember like, riding the bike, 
and doing like a um, just doing 360s on the flat. Well, actually, doing flat ground 360s without even touching the back tire. I can't even do that now. And Chuck was like, "What are you doing?" And we're like, "We're riding our bikes." And he's like, "When you're with me, you don't do any of that shit. You just <laughs> race." We were like, "Oh yeah, we've been told." So uh, yeah, we we didn't really understand that really. Cause I remember we'd been in the van, we took in pictures of us at Southport Skate Park, like jumping, and he goes, "My bikes are not designed to do that." <laughs> we were like, "Oh," and we just didn't understand. You know, we just thought BMX was just one thing. Um, but yeah, wow. So Chuck took us to Amy, uh, and we, we actually met John from Amy that I only just found out passed away earlier this year. Um, so we we went to Amy, we went to Vans, we went to um, Talker because we wanted a, a, a slightly cheaper bike because Robinson obviously was high end and he wasn't making completes. So he took us to see Steve Johnson. So we got hooked up there. And then, of course, Max with Doris Johnson was part of that. So we did Max as well. He drove us out to Carlsbad uh, to see Bob Harrow. Uh, Bob just had, in fact, I spoke to Bob about this only recently. He had a, a single lockup, um, and I think he had, he was making numbers. The Type 2 plate had just come out, and uh, bubble visors. Uh, so, yeah, just those. That was his product line, and he did number plates for us with, um, I remember him putting the numbers on and then putting them back in the bags and then heat sealing them. It was just at the time that Haro logo came out. Um, kind of like a quicksilvery kind of logo with the the R went around the O at the end. If you remember that one, that logo had just uh, just and, come out. And of, you could you could buy that plate anywhere in England as well. Like I say, not even you. I remember my local. I don't know what store it was, a hardware store or something. You could get a Type Two horror number plate there. You know. Well, yeah. So this is funny because you know when I went to California back in February to race moto. Uh, we went to Harrow and, you know, met up with John and Joe Hawk and everything. And we were like, and I'm sitting in their office and I'm thinking, well, thinking about it, we were the first Harrow distributor in the UK. And, of course, they don't know because, you know, they're uh, relatively, you know, new yeah. to it. So, uh, yeah, so that was quite But you funny. never so, really pushed Harrow in the UK, did you? Obviously, you didn't do a team in that. It was, it was all shiners, I always remember. You know, on a point of... Um, you know, you're now touching the point of my, my failures, really, because I guess we wanted to do something because we wanted to do it. And I know we've got to make money. Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, um, more money would be good. But, you know, that was never and I know that is probably fashionable to say that now, but that was never really the focus. So we were never that like gung ho, you know, to make loads and loads of money because it was all about just doing the thing that we loved. You know, and that's admirable. Uh, but yeah, I would have probably made some different um, decisions because in, in '82, when we were doing Talker, uh, and we were still doing Haro a little bit, we had a few orders and whatever. And then I was with Steve Johnson and Tony Holland, actually. And we drove to, he was dropping us off at Knott's Berry Farm and he was going on to meet. And I'm like, where are you going? And he says, I've got me to meet Bob Haro. I went, oh, yeah. What's all that about then? He says, oh, he wants me to make frames for him. I'm like, oh, okay. Good. Anyway, we'll see you uh, We'll see you later on. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I didn't think to, like, go, shit, Harrow's making frames. Yeah, jump in on it. You know, why don't I say, 
yeah, we'll take 50 frames and you know, uh, I'd be now speaking to you from fucking Hawaii or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, them horror freestylers. But, uh, but yeah, I guess, I don't know. That wasn't, you know, the, the financial um, the financial world dominance wasn't on, um, you know, just wasn't a priority. So uh, 82 was your first full year of having two teams then, was it? Talker and Robinson? Well, no, 81, because, 81. you know, speaking back about Mike, we went, we did the talker thing when we were there in, in April, Easter, 81, and then um, we brought some stuff back with us, including, you know, a talker, classic, you know, talker, this is before the 280, so it'd be like, a, they called them an LP or an LPX, with all gold parts on it and yellow comp twos, and uh, alloy, gold alloy, little gold alloy V-bars kind of swept back, right. you know, the and uh, and, a, and a number plate. We had a number plate done for him as well, a three four eight on, which I had Bob make. And we went to Partington, and there's a picture in um, BMX uh, News, probably BMX News number two or three. In fact, I've got them right here. I've got all, I've got file copies of all the BMX News one to sixteen. Wow. Which. Obviously, I need to scan or photograph and give them to you for you to share them. I've actually got, I've actually got most of them. I actually, uh, John Higginson, um, uh, and if he's listened to this, he knows I've got uh, every issue of uh, BMX News and uh, every issue of BMX Weekly. I do have my like cluster stash, but John, actually, I met up with him in mid nineties, uh, probably ninety six, ninety seven, in uh, when I was in England. Uh, I was at Coppel for a race and he came down with right. a briefcase and he says, take care of these. And uh, I still have them. I always tell him every couple of years they're, they're still in immaculate condition and uh, they're always um, always there for when he wants them back. But he says, you know, uh, he wants me to, yeah, I mean, he, he just says he's happy for me to keep them for the time being and he said I can share more of the pictures. And uh, so, yeah, but I don't overdo it. I, I, I have them all there. And after this interview... I'll definitely look and uh, post some of these to go with this because there's some yeah, awesome this is stuff. Me in my sock and underpant drawer, which is really <laughs> kept like just right here. Right. Uh, and <laughs> why do you need so many underpants? Oh, dear me. <laughs> and but yeah, the mad thing about these is, is if you remember, they're all they're all U.S. photos because they used to get slides, didn't they, from the U.S. So they didn't have U.K. content in them. Right. A lot of not very uh, farm and stuff, isn't they? For a very, very long, uh, for a very, very long time. So they're all American riders, pretty much on the, um, pretty much on the cover. Or oh, there's that classic picture of uh, uh, John Lee with his leather jacket on and his Doc Martin boots. Oh yeah, that's been around a lot, hasn't it? That's classic. That's, uh, that's absolutely fantastic. Tell Maybe us a, tell us about some of the riders you sponsored, Alan, because for. I mean, you just iconic teams in the in the UK with Robinson and Talker. I mean, that's when I kind of came into into racing, and I just the guys in my age group. You know, you had Darren Page on Talker and and Darren Nelson on Robinson, and you know, we joke about it every few years when we see each other. You know, I wrote a letter to you trying to. I said I, I need to be on Robinson or Talker. You know, I'm still climbing <laughs> the ranks and. Uh, you guys denied me that. You offered me a co-sponsorship program on the Mirage team, which would have still been great, but I, I ended up going with uh, a Shempar JMC. But, I mean, just tell us about the riders. I mean, that you discovered Dylan Clayton, you know, Tony Holland, you know, and I'm sure Dylan would say the same. Before Dylan, it was Tony Holland was the smooth, technical rider with one and three eight rims that no one had seen till 
you know, we saw pictures of Tony. So, yeah, tell us about some of the, the guys you sponsored and that all went on to great things, including yourself. It's hard to say um, how that happens. You know, again, you know, I hate to keep comparing everything to Moto. It's like with Moto, you know, with in the in the late 70s, it was El Cajon. All these riders came from El Cajon. Now, was it because, you know, there was a riding area there or somebody influenced somebody else or it was organic? I've got no idea. But obviously, I think having a obviously having a track, you know, and we had couple and then we had three sisters. So we had two really good tracks. Um, it's like chemistry, Dale, really. You know, so if you've got these factors available in that area, you will get a you know, the riders will come through, won't they? You so, created such a scene, though. I mean, just if you're, if you're into BMX in England, even, with the, you know, branches off into freestyle and guys. But, I mean, you guys, did you know what you was doing? You was creating the scene, but then it was getting documented at the same time, you know, which was, yeah, just, just every time you guys probably went out the front door, you, you ended up being in the magazine, right, at some point. Well, that's the other thing. You know, there's a formula to this, isn't there? So it's to have... You know, somewhere where you can get the stuff, uh, somewhere where you can use the stuff, and somewhere where you can find out about it. And, you know, us having the shop and having uh, the brands that we had and having, you know, three sisters that we built. And, you know, before that, you know, Charlie uh, through uh, John Lee and, and, he, and his dad, Peter, um, you know, allowing us to be involved in that. And then, of course, as we've just mentioned, BMX News. So, for those guys, um, so for Bill Lawless specifically, to have um, the foresight to put their expertise into a very, very unknown sport, um, which was still absolutely in its infancy. You know, there wasn't even a national series at that point. It was all very exciting, but also... Um, you know, really, really early days. There wasn't much, you know, structure at all. There was a few clubs, wasn't there? You know, Redditch and Ipswich and Humberside, but there wasn't really, you know, a lot of structure. So to to print with a, a, a colour cover like, a, a, you know, a full-on newspaper, and I don't know how many they they printed, but and you could go into any newsagent, mm-hmm. like, and it's hard for a younger generation to understand. Um, yeah, understand really, but you could just wherever you lived, unless you were really rural, you could like walk to like the local, well, like Seven Eleven. You'd, you'd refer to it now as, I suppose, uh, to get a flipping Slurpee or something, and there they would have. And it was bloody- so exciting to see that the magazine. I mean, I would, you know, I mean, and everyone did the same. We all went days before, and we're just like, is it here? Is it here? Is it, you know, you're going bug the and news then, agent, and um, you know. It was, it was it weekly? It was weekly? Was it weekly? It was BMX News, and then that went into BMX Weekly newspaper, and then obviously then, it, uh, I think, official BMX. Well, it was, it was weekly. It's just blowing my mind. It was week. It was a weekly. BMX news- Weekly. Yeah, it was BMX Weekly, then it was BMX Bi-Weekly after. Yeah, so, like, yeah, so issue number, issue number two is the one with uh, Mike Chilvers on the cover mm-hmm. with... Uh, an unknown redline rider and possibly Dave Arnold. And then in the inside, it's when we came back from America and there's a picture of me and Dave. Uh, I've got Scott Clark's number plate 
his NBL number one plate, and we've got the plate on and everything. And I've got a wing thing. Do you remember wing things? They're the. Uh, aren't, were they on your? It weren't like gaiters. They were like the upper gaiters. Like we were on your on your on your uh, forearms. Were they? Well, <laughs> they were um, silver, like chrome, uh, like cartoon padded wing that you velcroed onto your um, <laughs> sort of bicep. Right. So, yes. Yeah. I've seen a picture of you with them. Yes. Yeah. That, that I'm. Uh, I'm rocking that. I'm rocking that. Style, yeah. So and that, yeah, and there's a bit more, a bit more about that, and then on the inside back cover, there's a picture of uh, Mike. Uh, it says uh, "Talker for pardon," and uh, I shan't embarrass any of us by reading out the uh, the text after the headline. But there you go. And Alan, <laughs> you was the first official. This is for everybody listening. You was the first official national champion, sixteen plus, and that was 1982, right? 81. 1981. Okay, so tell us a little bit about that and your first... Some, some other, uh, some other uh, bastard was number one in, in 1982. But anyway, I'm yeah. sure we'll touch on I'm sure we'll touch on Tim later. Right, definitely. So tell us about that first full year. How many nationals were, you know, did you do? I, I know regionals were kind of classed as nationals back in those first couple of years, right? Well, there was, some, there was a points thing, wasn't there? So there was maybe six or eight nationals. And then you got points for regionals as well. I can't remember how it worked. So, but you yeah. guys were racing every weekend. It stopped, right? Were you guys up and down yeah, the country? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So we were, and like I say I was racing motocross right up to February '81, uh, and then in fact my bike we had a, an '81 YZ125, and um, and he just I'd like oh there's a BMX race, and then we didn't race it, and we didn't. I mean we actually sold it. And I borrowed it back to uh, race it at um, uh, in Staffordshire. Craig Burroughs came with me, and uh, I ran out of fuel because um, I guess I didn't refuel it between races. And then after that, we just went, yeah, it's just it's just BMX. So um, that was it. Like you know, totally, every, you know, every weekend. And then we went to California, and then we went to California like I don't know, like three, four, five times a year or something. In all those years, working with Chuck, and um, is that how you bought all the bikes back then? You just load up all your bags, and you know you have five, I have five, and just kind of do it that way. Or how many kind of bikes were you bringing in then? Uh, well, no, we air freighted everything. You know, so uh, the only thing we probably brought in, um, yeah, I, you know, is anybody from HMRC listening? I don't know, um, but yeah, probably. I remember coming back, back with flight cranks because they were so expensive. You know, they were like 180 quid, weren't they? Flight cranks then, and like yeah. they're 100 quid now, aren't they? Uh, so yeah, they were really dear. So we would, you know, bring flight cranks back. But yeah, no, we would, uh, we would spend a lot of money on air freight, and uh, you know, it's a contributing factor why we never made any money. We paid so much money for uh, for freight, and because you needed the product straight away, and sea freight from California took too long. So we just used to. Um, we just used to uh, air freight everything. And, and in fact, I have actually got the archive. I've got all, um, you know, all my written correspondence with Steve Johnson and Chuck. You know, I still have, you know, filed away uh, all our invoices for everything that we bought, all the original price lists. So it's really cool that I kept all. Oh, absolutely. Kept, I kept all that stuff. But, yeah, we would just go out there and race and we did. Um, we would either go just go. I go on my own to to race and then come back and then we'd do. 
Um, we did that Jag World Championship in Vegas. Tropicana. Was that 82, maybe? Yes, 82. I think that was 82. The one where all the bikes got stolen. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember Tony Holland's bike getting stolen, and, and we had to buy another one, and he, but he did get that back. And Tim Leedy's bike got stolen. Um, so, yeah. Um, and then we went, you know, we had you know, a bunch of other trips. I remember going over with Scott Barber and uh, Mark White, uh, you know, anybody who wanted to come, even people that didn't ride for us, you know, would would kind of come, uh, uh, kind of come on the uh, on the trip. Um, but I can't say enough about uh, Chuck, really, what he did for the sport in general. And, um, it, you know, a bit of a sad tale, really, not just, you know, really how um, how it ended for him. But he was a but yeah, he didn't have, um, he didn't really never had the financial backing to make the brand really what it was. So in a way, he was almost like, you know, kind of like a, a cool record label that would pick up all these bands, but never make any money out of them because they were signed to a major label, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I understand. Um, so was like Robinson and Tucker the kind of, was you like kind of doing everything equally, evenly, or did you focus more on, on one or the other? Because it seems like uh, your teams well, were pretty loaded up on both sides, weren't they? Yeah, we, we, we tried to keep them separated. And I remember Chuck wanting Jason Ramsden to be, wait a minute, Scott Barber to be on Talker. And like, he even sent me a, he even sent me a Scott Clark frame. And the Scott Clark frame was like what you called an expert frame then. Not like an expert frame now, because I wrote an expert frame. So an expert was like a, I guess like a, what you call a standard, like a pro or something. Mm-hmm. And Scott Clark went out a European threaded bottom bracket and he sent me that uh, first Scott Barber and I gave it to Tony Holland and I don't think he ever, <laughs> I don't think Chuck ever forgave me for that. But um, but yeah, uh, there you go. So I didn't really want to cross-pollinate the, the two because they have brand identities and, and obviously brand identity now is a really, because the products are so generic and they all come from the same factories, uh, product identity is really important, but then the products really were different. So again, this is another thing uh, difficult to explain to a younger audience. Maybe people are fooled and they think that uh, you know um, I don't want to mention any names. You know, brand X and brand Y. That's some totally different shit, man. But in fact, no, it comes out of Psychologic or whatever factory it comes out of in Taiwan. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Uh, but but whereas then you know. Uh, uh, a talker was made there in uh, on West Commonwealth Avenue in Fullerton uh, by two or three welders, and uh, a Robinson frame was made by whoever Boris Dixon or whoever Chuck had making them at the time, and they were made by this guy, that guy, and the other guy, uh, and that's how products were different. They were physically different from the DNA. The only thing they might have shared, you know, is the is the chrome tubing. Um, but other than that, you know, the way they, they were jigged and everybody had different ideas about geometry, head tube angles and seat tube angles were all different, weren't they? So if you looked at a Kuahara or a Robinson or a Torca or a CW, you know, the, the seat tube angles would like seemingly differ by like 10 degrees. Well, CW really did, didn't it? Yeah. So, you know, there was no, um, and obviously, you know, things you know, a sport develops and everything becomes optimal, doesn't it? Whether it's a skateboard or a snowboard or a bloody fishing rod, I don't know. You know, things tend to all gravitate to one thing. So at that time, uh, the manufacturing was enough in itself. Um, and again, I spoke to somebody about this recently, the way 
obviously the way teams work was very different because the only reason that you had a team was directly to be able to sell products. And I'm not saying that, you know, the teams that exist nowadays aren't all based on that, but it's not quite as, it's not quite as black and white. It wasn't like a, a club, you know, no one bought into the team, you know, uh, and I guess the way BMX has gone, well, certainly, you know, from what I understand in the UK with, you know, us running the, you know, the GT Heritage thing that we do, um, it's definitely, you know, you know, we, we have brands with teams that, that you can't even buy the product here, you know? Mm-hmm. No, no, totally, totally so, different. How many, um, I mean, again, there's so many questions on that stuff because I, I love all that stuff. I mean, at the same time, you built, you and your dad, right, built Wigan Three Sisters, which became one of the most iconic British tracks and probably still to this day the most well-known. It hosted a Kellogg's Round. It always would have, not always, but you'd sometimes have the first national and the last national of the year. Um, And just so much BMX history has has gone down in that. And so you was doing the whole track thing on on top of the, the distribution, right? Well, yeah, this it's a familiar. You'll see that there's a familiar theme uh, emerging here, Dale. Yeah. Uh, somebody would say, "Can you come and do a track?" And I would just go there, and I would like help them with the design and do whatever shit they needed, and then I'd just come back, and that was it. You know, I never got paid. And you did remember, Birmingham, Birmingham Wheels as well, right? Didn't you design that me track? And Mike, me and Mike went to Birmingham Wheels to. Um, they said we want a track, and I'm like, okay you know fine and i know there was other people there you know i spoke to pat robinson about this and i know that they had input as well so i don't want to say yeah i just came along and i just did this but we went to birmingham wheels and, and met chris um they Rather, had funding yeah. they had funding didn't they from something to do with like probation service or helping underprivileged kids but they had funding didn't they some inner city funding to be able to help support uh, you know facilities um, and he said, yeah, we want to do a track. So I remember, cl- you know, there's just some things that you don't really remember clearly. So I had a, um, I had an Austin Maxi, a metallic green Austin Maxi. <laughs> Google it, folks. And <laughs> Austin Maxi, 1751. So it was like, you know, it was the, uh, it had the big engine. So me and Mike drove to Birmingham, which was probably an hour then. It would take you three hours if I was to leave to go there now. And, um, we met with Chris and Awesome and da, 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 and we had no money to get back. So I like said um, I, we had no fuel. We had, you know I run out of you know we just had enough fuel to get there. <laughs> so I said you know can we get some money for fuel? And he's like, oh I don't know. We'll have to. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. So I said I'll have to look in the petty cash. And he gave us five pounds. So we we put five pounds and we had to drive home at fifty mile an hour the whole way. And, so, and, and just for those that don't, un, don't, don't know about Birmingham Wheels, Birmingham Wheels went on to be one of the best tracks in the country. It hosted the 83 European Championships, Euros, yeah. the 1984 European Championships. Americans came over and, and you know, Andy Patterson. Um, and then, but in today's world, you build a track and, you, you know, you're getting six figures, right? And you can even get your, your petrol money home, right? Well, that's the most amount of money they've ever got for designing the track. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's uh, there. You go. I should have just kept that, but I needed to put it in the uh, in the car for fuel, unfortunately. And the um, other funny thing was, if you remember how wide the start was, yeah, remember how wide the start was. So Chris said to me, "How wide do you want the start?" I'm like, "Twice as wide as normal." <laughs> I was joking because it always bugged me. You come out the gate in a normal race, and someone would just like 
I mean, it was when bars were getting wider too. When everybody had like 25-inch wide bars, it was swept back alloy V bars. It was all good. But, you know, when people had 28-inch wide bars, or 20, what, 20, I don't know how wide Robinson 9-inch bars were wide, but they were 9-inch nine, nine rise bars, how wide they were, they were pretty wide. And someone had just like, just put a helmet in front of you and then you couldn't pedal, otherwise right. you'd run into them. Yes. And then kind of the race was over. So I'm like, dude, just make it like twice as wide as normal. And then, hilariously, he did. Right, yeah. And first track in the UK with traffic lights, right? Did One they have them. traffic lights? Yes, they did, because I remember going there and like, uh, I'm like, whoa, what is, what's this that all was, about? That wasn't, that wasn't part of my design. I'm not interested. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, it was definitely the first time for me anyway, seeing, seeing wow. traffic lights after, you know, magazines was, was Birmingham but the, but the whole thing, having the idea of having the drop-off halfway down the start straight was, was mine. Uh, the left-hander, which is probably a little bit too much of a dog leg, if anything. And then do you see how many people, like, snapped frames and forks and stems? Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of like, you know, probably the first Supercross track, almost, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd venture to say. Well, the Whoops, they had their own, like, well, I guess Wigan Whoops had their own sticker as well. But Birmingham Wheels, like the Coffin Doubles, they was obviously famous for the for the time and if you jumped them it was a big deal you got you know then which then probably the dolly partons as well so probably they were the, the three big tracks with well-known doubles right it was it was the first track that i really remember and obviously modern bmx this is what it's all about but you were racing the track as much as you were the other riders yeah you know i mean pro section as well weren't they so you'd take yeah. a left and then over a double then a step up or something then a triple right which was watching old footage was, was tough even for you guys right yeah, I can't, and I remember, but yeah, there wasn't much of a, and the other thing was, it wasn't a U inside a U. No. This is what I can't understand about the modern tracks. You know, why do they have this blank canvas, and dude, it's a U inside a U. Yeah. So, you know, we didn't need to do that, so, and obviously it was naturally downhill as well, um, so we didn't need to f- follow that, <clears throat> we didn't need to follow that format uh, but I did Whitehaven as well, you know, just... Yes, an- another, yeah, Whitehaven doubles. I mean, you were obviously renowned then for, for designing iconic double jumps in the early 80s, you know? Well, the best thing about Whitehaven was, if you remember, the second turn had tapered doubles. Yes, in the t- yes, exactly. And, 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 I, and I've thought about this many a time, you know, that would still be rad today because yes. you could either go wide all the way around the outside and not touch it. So they tapered from down to nothing on the outside of the berm. Yeah. So they were bigger doubles on the inside. So you could either, uh, someone would be listening to this going, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll charge somebody like, uh, you know, <laughs> £250,000 to add this into the next track. <laughs> uh, yeah, send, me, send, send me, if anyone does that, you know. Uh, send, yeah. Uh, I'll take £5. I'll take £6. <laughs> uh, but you could either, you know, go tight and jump them or you could go around the outside or you could jump the first one from the inside and drift out and then land in the berm and, and you literally would have, and those things are very difficult to design and make them work in practice. But that's really what happened. People really did use those different. Um, well, you those- could have a bad start and you could rail that turn because everyone would go on. Everybody would, you know what I remember people would hit the first one, then kind of drift out. Um, so if you're like six, seventh, or eight and smart, you know, I'm sure Tom Lynch did. I seem to remember you could yeah. rail that berm and you could blow by three or four people down the next straightaway, you know, or, or even cut back in and, and high low. But there was so many moves, uh, which you say would probably still work today if there was design, right? 
Well, yeah, that's. I don't want to come across as, yeah, it was better in my day, but I think for, and we'll touch on this no doubt, but for modern BMX, more things that happen on the track and give people more options because there's so much emphasis on the start. Obviously, there always has been, but if you could have um, not just different lanes, but more, and again, you know, I'm trying to avoid falling into the, the negativity trap uh, and start talking about clips and everything. Um, but yeah, you know, there definitely is much more, you know, more than ever there is like a, a prime line. And I know you do see high lows and stuff on turns when I watch modern racing. It, it can happen, but I'd like to see, um, you know, not just different, uh, you know, different. Sometimes you get a di- two different rhythms, don't you, on a straight and you can pick. But not just that, you know, maybe something else in a turn or whatever, just to be able to give people more options if they get a bad start. And it makes it better for the for the fans and for the riders and just makes the racing a bit better. And I think, <clears throat> you know, I think I could venture out as far as to say, you know, modern BMX could do with that little bit of spark, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Now, we'll definitely get a bit, bit more um, into what you think of currents in the state. You're still in the industry now. You still have your shop. Um, but let's go a little, I'll say I still love all this old stuff, especially stuff I don't know about. Um, tell us about, like, say, I, I think you're the godfather, you know, you got, you know, Scott was the godfather in the US and we've got Gerrit Dose, who's uh, the European godfather. But I, I truly believe you, you are the godfather of British BMX, where probably someone that doesn't know as much, so you, you probably say Andy Ruffalo, Tim March. Tell us about how you felt about probably them getting a, probably a bit more media and, and it was always Ruffalo against March and we all love the the Ruffle March uh, stories, but did you feel a little bit left out or was you okay uh, with that? Uh, no, because we had the business, so they were racing and, you know, and, and I know Tim, you know, was running MRD later and then, you know, I think he realized how difficult that was. But, you know, um, I was happy to do, you know, some racing and do the business. So really, you know, I never really saw myself as you know, a spotlight pro, although, you know, I did okay, <clears throat> but I never really, um, you know, you know, we trained and, you know, all that stuff and la di da da but, you know, I never really saw myself as a pro athlete, you know, the business sort of, you know, kind of came, um, came first and yeah, no, I never, got, I never got the magazine and got fucking, Tim March again on the cover, you know. <laughs> and Andy Ruffle, I'm sick to, you know. I honestly didn't. I'm not just saying this. And probably I should have because we should have all hated them. Right. We should have all, you know, we should have all hated them. And I know the only time we ever really got upset was we came to the first Kellogg's and um, we had the motos. Tim and Andy were pre-qualified. Mm-hmm. Don't know if anyone's ever said this. Yeah, blow it out. Let's know. I know you said this in your interview, it, but yes, yeah, say it. Tim and Andy were pre-qualified. So did you so say? Did you say something, or you just kind of? Yeah, you know, like this is bullshit. And what did they you say? Know, like, me and Pete Middleton, and like we were like, this is total bullshit. And the TV people were like, and Alan Rushton or whoever, yada da da da. Like, no, well, they're they're they're, they're the stars, but like, you know, you. you <laughs> So basically, you know, six men. You guys were battling for six spots. You guys were battling for six spots in the final, right? Because no matter what, Tim and Andy were going to be in there. 
Yeah, so imagine it today, you know, you go to, you know, Supercross and Maris is already pre-qualified because he's like the star and he's got to be on TV. Right. But if he's good, he'd qualify anyway. Yeah. I know sometimes you might have, this happened in Supercross in the 70s, you have like a promoter's pick or whatever, do you know what I mean? And you'd have an extra rider in there. I don't know how that would work. But yeah, uh, that's the only time I was really like, this is total, <laughs> this is, this is, this is total bullshit, you know. This is like this isn't, you know, fair to the rest of us, you know. And those guys were good. I'm not taking anything away from them, and you know, they definitely elevated the sport and the rivalry and and everything else. But like, you know, you know, I think. But what what can they do? It wasn't their fault, you know. I like to think that maybe Tim should have said, "No, this isn't fair," you know. A 2018 Tim March wouldn't have allowed that, would he? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> like this isn't this isn't equal for all parties. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was the only time really that I was, uh, you know, I was a bit. Um, well, what, I was, I was another, about it. Why we on the why we on the subject of my great friend Tim? Um, tell us about that 1983 1983 first national at uh, Wigan. You're... I'm just going to go and get a. Gl- I'm just going to go and get a glass of whiskey uh, quick. Uh, I'll be back in a moment. So I'm just. Uh, I'm just going to the cupboard to get the Jack Daniels. Hang on. <laughs> so the first national, 1983. It's at Wigan, uh, Allen's home track, and um, you know it's the last final of the day. You know, it's a big head to head. Allen is pretty. You know, I think uh, number one. So for your number one from '82. So, uh, and obviously Tim's coming in the class and, and obviously good as well. So, Alan, you're winning and Tim puts you over the um, last turn, right? Well, it was the next to last turn. And, um, yeah, we joke about this quite a lot, really, with, uh, with, with Tim. It's the, it's the gift that keeps on giving, really. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and Alice Temple's dad, actually, was the, um, you know, whatever you call it, the commissioner, where, clerk of the course or and whatever. And she had gone from your team to Tim's team, right? She had gone from Robinson. Oh, yes, to there you go. Conspiracy theory, you know? Right. Um, but, yeah, he just basically, it was a bold turn. It was a really... It was after the uh, King Kong, so it was the you know the herpin after the King Kong, the berm, and uh, yeah, a good start. And there's a picture of me in the first turn and flash photography. It's all good. I've got my Max legators on. I'm feeling good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just took my normal line. And he just came up on the inside and just like it was obviously it was a big guy. And also uh, respect to that bastard. How did he ride those bikes with like 18 inch top tubes? I mean, he just deserves an award, an extra, what a belated, uh, <laughs> very tall person riding a, and that, and that, uh, lady, you know, that uh, boys and girls is the size of like a flipping, the top tube of a, uh, a junior bike. A junior size race bike nowadays or an 18 inch wheel BMX park bike. That's the size of the top tube. And how, how tall was how tall was Tim Dale? I don't know, he was seven foot, wasn't he? He, is. he must have been he must have been six four or five he was bloody tall, he do you know tall. what I mean? Yeah, I mean you can see any picture. Power of forward, he, he definitely over overlooked everybody back then, didn't he? Um so yeah, he just like you know, lifted my he used his right elbow to lift my handlebars, I think. You know, and he was strong too because he was doing all gym shit and everything else. We never did anything like that. And so basically, you know, just lifted the front wheel off. And and then I had a Bell, Bell BMX3, all custom-painted uh, Robinson one. 
And I remember really clearly, carefully throwing the helmet so it would land in some mud. So I was like, yeah, I'm angry, I'm pissed off, but I don't really want to damage that helmet, you know. So uh, I carefully threw the helmet and uh, made a verbal complaint um, uh, to Mr. Temple, uh, which came back. Well, I believe Mr. Temple... Uh, conversed with the uh, the offender in this case, and <laughs> the ruling was that uh, it wasn't an illegal move. So Tim, so, got, so Tim got the win. Um, he got a helmet that just was slightly muddy. Now, did you guys have words? Can you remember, or that was kind of no big deal? Um, I can't remember, but there was always a there was always a um, there was always a respect, and I remember him speaking to you know my mum a lot about it at the time, you know, because we had this motocross background, we had sort of a shared, we kind of had a, um, there was something that we shared there, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, never really had, um, you know, any, any, any harsh, uh, any harsh words, uh, perhaps I should have done. Uh, I don't know, but what good would it have done anyway, Dale? Do you know what I mean? It's like nowadays, you know, and I've been in this situation with the team in, in, in you know, recent time you know modern times and someone's come out of a turn crashed and then someone and then you know these people like referees or whatever they are have disqualified one of our riders <laughs> and they haven't even done anything and the rider has gone down has gone i just lost the front end or whatever do you know what i mean and it wasn't him but that's it you're there all weekend for a national and then you know you make the semi and then something like that happens and then somebody um, is officiating it like a football match. Right. Uh, that that's also bullshit. So I don't know. Probably some were, probably some were, um, probably some were in between. And again, I hate to keep you know going on about bloody moto, but if you watch Supercross from 2017, the the, the last round with Zach Osborne's pass on Joey Savacci, I remember that. Yeah, for the championship. And people like, you know, and people have been fined for, you know, uh, lesser. But I think just because it was the last corner and it was for the championship, it was all good. And obviously people had, you know, very polarised opinions. But, um, but yeah, e- even that sport is very uh, conflicted how to, um, what is dangerous or dirty riding. But my feeling is, if you know, there should never be any expulsion or disqualification for anything that happens on the track, unless someone makes a complaint and then it gets looked at. There's no way that someone should, with like a bloody vest on, should be like watching it like it's a football match and deeming that that is uh, unsportsmanlike or dangerous. No way. And that's the way it was back then a lot, wasn't it? When it was, uh, you, you finish your line, especially more maybe MBMXA, you would get disqualified for even styling. I remember there was a styling disqualification a lot, during a lot of... <laughs> lot of periods. Alan, you went on to race the Kellogg's and you actually, I think you got somewhat of a, a payback back to Tim. I think it was Gateshead, again, without watching it. Tim was winning, he crashed, and then you went on to win and, and win the final round of uh, 84, right? 120 pounds, Dale. 120, 120 pounds for first, not bad at all. But they, they say that the, the coverage is there, it was on TV. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about the, the Kellogg's winning that race and being part of that yeah, and being on thing, TV. The Kellogg's, thing, the Kellogg's thing was awesome for BMX. And, 
Uh, it's the only time uh, I've um, ever ever really turned it to my advantage. We went to, and we would, we did a, um, a BMX demo series with Ford, with uh, Andy Owen and Terry Jenkins, and uh, yeah, that was a really financially um, lucrative uh, deal. Uh, not for my good self again, because obviously, you know, I hate making money. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they, uh, we went, I remember going to Nottingham, we went to McDonald's, and then this girl, the girl serving us said, I, I know you don't, I? I'm like, no, I'm not from round here. She went, oh, yeah, you were just on TV. I'm like, yes. So, but anyway, that's as, that's as far as it went, uh, right. unfortunately. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, the whole thing was brilliant, and um yeah, awesome. And by the time it came to the second one, I was like, yeah, you know, and by then, you know, the, the Robinson thing, Chuck had loads of problems and we couldn't get product and Talker was where the future was. And then, you know, Steve spent loads and loads of money, more money than he really had. And then Talker went out of business. So we were basically left with a situation where, you know, we weren't doing Robinson anymore and there wasn't anybody doing it uh, before that Hoffman guy got involved, you know. Uh, which so there was a year or maybe two where there wasn't any Robinson in the UK and it was impossible, you know, for me to get any product, you know, because he had manufacturing issues. The ne Chuck never made his own stuff. We switched over to Talker and then Talker got Mike Miranda and Tommy Brackens and spent a shitload of money. And those guys were making, you know, uh, you can, uh, you know, I'm sure you know, they were making a lot of money. I remember being there with Tony Holland with Mike Miranda and Mike getting a check from Galindo. Do you remember Galindo handlebar? Yes, yes, absolutely. He had like a bolt-on crossbar, a bit like a rental, really. Yes. And uh, he got a check. Oh, Tony will probably remember. I think it was like for like $250, like, you know. A lot what, of money back then, yeah. Got, this is like 1983, 4, 4, 84, 84. And he went, yeah, we're going to Rodeo Drive. And we were like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we're going to rodeo drive and i'm like what's that is it you know i don't know do they have hookers or something i don't know where is this place so he drove us to rodeo drive parked in the front valet parking and that's the first time i ever heard the word valet parking valet parking me and tony are like got ripped up vans no socks we haven't had any clean clothes for like a week i think they just let us stand in the front of the shop uh, and Mike bought a shirt with his check, a shirt, two hundred and fifty dollars. What about you? You, you discovered? Would you say you discovered Dylan Clayton then? Because he rode for you for Robinson in eighty three, eighty four, and then before he went on to Amico. So tell us a bit about the the Dylan period for you. I don't really know, you know, why Dylan didn't end up with us, you know, full time, or I don't know. I, I can't honestly, I mean, I can't remember what happened with Alice Temple. And I was speaking to her a couple of years ago. I'm like, yeah, why did you stop writing for me? She said, because I broke a frame and you said I've been doing freestyle on it and you wouldn't give me another one. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I, 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 I don't, um, I don't know. But he didn't really ride for us for very long. And yeah, I, and it's like the... Um, the Greaves kids as well, you know. Yeah, they were you from know. your area, but they didn't really ride for you, did they? They were from Southport. So, yeah, there was maybe a few, you know, Darren Oldham and... Andy Oldham. John Lee, you know, John went on to ride for Rally, and John should have probably rode for us. But I guess, 
you know, you, you can't have everybody, can you? And, and again, uh, harking back to my um, uh, anti-capitalism manifesto, <laughs> I guess we wanted to, you know, spread the uh, spread the wealth. I don't know. Damien <laughs> Miles as well. He probably, I, yeah, he didn't write for you either, did you? Being a Manchester guy, who's that? Damien Miles. No, no. So, um, yeah, I don't know. But maybe that was it. You know, we couldn't have everybody on the team, and I wasn't. I wasn't motivated enough to really make it happen for someone. It's even like, you know, the, the team now, you know, the GT thing that we do now, you know, we weren't really trying to get like, you know, a bunch of number one riders or nothing. Do you know what I mean? We were just happy to have some friends and, yes, yes, you know, yes. look good and, you know, it just be a thing and not be, uh, and, 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 and not be a hassle either, you know? So maybe also, you know, I'm not necessarily in Dylan's case, but you know, dealing with BMX parents, um, you know, that can be that can be challenging, can't it, Dale? Absolutely, yeah. No, I I, I totally get it. it's about having good people around you. Like the day you got to sit with these people all weekend, and so uh, it doesn't all necessarily mean. Yeah, you know, sometimes the, the fastest, best riders are the biggest pain in the asses. You know, so a happy trade uh, a national number one for a national number four if it's more fun to be around. You know, so yeah, I, yeah, I so get you know, it. But but you really did breed so much. Um, yeah, just awesome riders that came out of, you know, Manchester, Wigan, Congleton, and then Freestyle as well. We just did a podcast with Simon Tabron. He obviously, we, he said he started it uh, with you guys as well before moving into to Freestyle as well. So um, you definitely created just a, yeah, a iconic scene that, yeah, was just, just great to look at, looking at the magazines. Um, let's talk a little bit more, then we go into the 2000s again. You always kept the BMX kind of took a dive in the late 80s, and then you kept the shop but then you got more into records and uh music and stuff right as well yeah well we always did bmx all the way through you know we'd never not had a bmx bike in the shop ever and then i guess you know we did a lot of skate the, the things all drift you see so we did um we were really going to skateboarding in the mid 80s and this is when you know mike ended up being a you know um pro skateboard mike pardon ended up being a pro skateboarder for a subsidiary of uh, flip basically so, you know, through my friend, you know, Dave Arnold and Craig Burroughs, we were all skating. They came from skateboarding more than I did. Um, so we would go to a race, but we were more interested in skateboarding. Uh, and this is actually quite funny because we just had the uh, uh, the fit team over and uh, they um, uh, rode a, a private pool and they actually, Austin Oggy and... Um, the rest of the guys, uh, Tom Dugan, they were more interested in skateboarding than, than riding there. Sometimes the case with pros, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You do your thing and that's your professional thing. But you'd rather do, you for enjoyment, you do something else. And you often see this in sports, don't you? Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so it was a little bit like that for us. So skateboarding, skateboarding, because of Thrasher magazine. And I was always interested in, I always loved, you know, music, you know, punk and, you know, David Bowie and, you know, whatever else. And uh, so through, um, there was a big kind of skate rock thing going on through Thrasher. You had Transworld, same as Transworld today, really. Um, you had, you know, Transworld Skateboarding Magazine, which is a bit more kind of clean cut and, um, you, know, you know, more preppy. This was more kind of like the Hesh side of it. So through that, we kind of got into music and started selling records. And then the record thing, Got really big uh, in the uh, in the, the later eighties, and then we did a record label, and we did a record with Dave Arnold's band, uh, Jail Recipes. A couple of albums with them, 
and flipping great times. But again, true to my roots, you know, we didn't make a goddamn penny. Uh, <laughs> and it was a great uh, drain on resources. So maybe when Hot Wheels, which is now CFG, uh, were <clears throat> persevering doing Mongoose and GT, maybe I should have been doing that and I'd, you know, be retired now. But uh, but anyway, <laughs> so, but, it, but I wouldn't swap it for anything because it was, it was so... It was so good, and um, you know, we did a record label. Like I said we did a record label. We did touring bands. We had venues. So I did. I was a promoter. So it was just good stuff to be around. And also, it was in you know a lot of those things from that time um, were a big influence on me. So uh, you know, you know, the straight edge scene and not drinking, and then vegetarianism, and then veganism, and all my politics all really came from that era. So you can really tell now on Facebook who was exposed to, um, you know, that more radical thinking music and those that, that weren't. And I've got friends on, you know, both sides of the, the political divide. And, um, you know, it's really the ones that were more music influenced uh, have got those different views. So it was a lot of the things from there I really stand by uh, today. So it, I'm, I'm glad uh, I'm glad we did it, and it cost us a lot of money, but it was fun. And then moving into the 2000s, um, you got more. You started tell us about some of the the brands you you know you bought in from the US, and you you actually sponsored Sinead Reed kind of towards a when she first kind of got on the on the radar, and maybe before the whole British Cycling Olympic stuff, she was in your camp, right? Yeah, so it was just good to you know work with uh, Sinead uh, as much as we possibly could. And again, there wasn't a lot of money about them, was there? You know, so mm -hmm. I'm talking, I'm trying to think, you know, when we, we probably, it was probably, I remember buying some, we were doing specialized BMX at the time because they had, you know, all the, um, all the mainstream mountain bike companies had a BMX phase, didn't they? Mm -hmm. You know, Trek, everybody had, uh, Gary Fisher, you know, they all had uh, a BMX phase. So we did specialized uh, BMX, um, mostly, you know, street park. Um, and uh, we had a bunch of frames and I took them to Koppel. Uh, and I remember this is funny because it makes it full circle. We bought a load of stock from Shempar. Um, oh, that's us. Yeah, our sponsor. From... Um, Bob Parkinson. Yeah, that came from, uh, that came from, a, uh, from a friend of mine. So we had a bunch of JMC stuff and uh, cyclecraft oh yeah so um yeah we had uh light blue and pink with the flamingos on <laughs> oh yeah oh. uh not 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 an iconic uh se uniform or kuara but still very 90s and uh we took all these frames to couple a bunch of uh you know those specialized like monocoque frames with the interrupted seat tube? yes yes uh those things uh, and I was wearing one of those cyclecraft vests, and I got really, really bad sunburn. It was the Grands. Do you remember Billy Clayton? Yeah. The Grands on the Monday. Right. And it was then. I had to go back to the shop to buy some more frames, and I'm like, shit, you know, we can still sell race stuff. And by then, nobody had an easy up, did they? Easy ups, like, there weren't any, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, and I'm like, you know, we could really do this. And then I thought, well, maybe we should do some race stuff. So, uh, through um, through Bill Ryan, we did uh, Pro Concept for a short time, and we had uh, Aaron Shrewsbury on the team, uh, and then we did Supercross, 
and then through the original owners of uh, Avent Bombshell. That was it. So yeah. we had that as a team, and you know, Anna, Alan Hill. So we had it set up pretty good, and then Mike came. Mike Pardon came back from Australia, and he helped us with the team, and he was a mentor for them, and then went on to do some early days coaching in British cycling. And I've got to give Mike a lot of credit here because he'd done a lot of. Um, Obviously, in 2008 for the Olympics, you know, they were uh, – um, British Cycling were trying to put a program together and Mike basically handed them his program from, um, you know, what he'd learnt in Australia. Um, but, yeah, he ended up not uh, not getting on with them and not able to – taking a leaf out of my book, perhaps, the day I'm not able to uh, turn that into um, – I don't think many people get on, well, got on with British cycling over the years. Well, yeah, <laughs> like, you know from experience. So, yeah, uh, so, yeah, so then – and then we got uh, – I spoke to Madison because Shimano were just about to launch the DXR thing. So, you know, big shout out to those guys. They really supported us with everything, anything that we needed. And it's the support that you don't really get nowadays. Uh, and they just give us anything that we needed. So uh, every brand that they had, you know, we had access to. So that was Shimano DXR, mainstream Shimano product. Uh, you know, they did Thor, Giro, Bell, Cycling Helmets, obviously Shimano Shoes, Park Tool, SIS, you know, you name it. Uh, but we did deliver... British Cycling number one team three years consecutive uh, for them and we had our veto all graphic up and we had double easy up and uh, the thing looked really good and, and, and even you know now when we started to do the GT thing people still you know we got some support just people saying like yeah shit you know you did a mega job then you know when you know we I, I like to think that we probably helped to you know made it a little bit more professional at the time, uh, I think the last year we probably ran that team was 2009. But it was difficult for me because the they just became doubleheader weekends. So it was a lot. It was Friday to Monday, basically. Um, and my youngest son was playing football with like an academy for, for like, you know, a big team. And uh, I had to go there with him. And that kind of took priority. Um, so, yeah, so that kind of uh, waned. Plus... You know, I really realised we weren't making any money. We weren't making any money uh, selling that uh, stuff. And it was at the time when, um, uh, you know, Cathy and her husband sold Avent Bombshell to the current owners. And that didn't work out too well for us without going into details. And, um, you know, Bill was just getting his feet together with Supercross. And I know, you know, he's done a, you know, he's obviously clearly done an awesome job. And I've got a lot of respect uh, to Bill for sticking with uh, all that through uh, through thick and thin um but yeah it, it just became difficult uh, just became difficult to do and, and at the time you know the freestyle side was enormous wasn't it so mm-hmm. I, I found myself you know putting all this effort into race uh that just didn't make us any money um and if anybody wanted anything they just ordered it from the states online and you know, because of the exchange rate at the time. So it was very demoralizing. As much as I love to, you know, help the riders and, uh, you know, be there at the weekend and do everything that they needed and just serve them, uh, you know, we never sold anything at the track because I was doing that the rest of the week. So, yeah, um, but it was good. You know, I'm still in touch with, you know, a lot of the people from uh, from then and, uh, and they're still friends with them and, 
you know, nearly all, pretty much all of them, really, you know, they were good, uh, they were good people. So we, we chose some good riders and the, the parents were, uh, you know, really helpful, um, really helpful as well. And, you know, we had Warren Bancroft on the team and, you know, there's a, there's a bloody podcast there, isn't it, Dale? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, a lot of, another talented kid that probably fell through the cracks, you know, and didn't, uh, uh, didn't... you know, de- definitely, uh, you know, we had two riders on that, uh, talent team, um, that didn't really fit the format, uh, but, you know, they definitely were talented. So mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, entirely blaming British cycling, uh, they weren't handled correctly, but, you know, obviously you're a, you know, you've got experience with coaching and, uh, the the trick to coaching isn't just reading a manual and having someone email your spreadsheet back every week. It's uh, knowing uh, you know what to do and when, and not every athlete responds in the same way. So it, it's more about listening sometimes mm-hmm. than it's uh, telling people what to do. And maybe at that point, uh, and it was early in, in in that program too, wasn't it? Uh, you know, I, you know, I know you were involved, and then you know Jamie was involved. Uh, so I think they were just trying to get um, input from everybody that they uh, that they possibly uh, that they possibly could. So for those two riders I've just mentioned, uh, that was you know that was unfortunate that that uh, that didn't work out. And uh, and again, you know, with sport generally, people when they get to that, you know, because I mentioned we were involved in the you know the academy football uh, thing, a lot of players when they got dropped. And the chances of being a professional footballer it is quite slim, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of rejection and a lot of people just dropped out of, not just football, but just dropped out of sport altogether at like age 13. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, you need to, we need to um, learn from lessons to avoid uh to avoid that happening in the future. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, Alan, talk a little bit about what you see today um, with current BMX racing, the industry, the culture, or maybe lack of culture in racing. Um, yeah, give me, give me your thoughts on, uh, yeah, current BMX. You spoke to Tim already, haven't you? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, is, I mean... Is there, a, is, is there even a culture? What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. It's um, things do become homogenized only over time. So everything tends to be very similar. The riding styles all become very similar. Um, there's not as much room for individuality, is there? You know. Um, yeah, it's hard to. Yeah, it's hard to really see anything that that, that stands out. You know, and I've used this analogy quite a bit. And again, I hate to keep comparing it to motocross, but this is bicycle motocross, Dale. And, you know, I just watched the first round of the national AMA National from Hangtown at the weekend. And, yeah, the track's got a lot of jumps in it and there's those uphill whoops and there's a bunch of doubles. But basically it's, you know, dirt bikes on dirt. But for me, you know, BMX has gone, you know, since the Olympics especially, as you know, I think the influence – of um, the national governing bodies and the whole thing about the medals and the Olympics has put too much emphasis on the upper echelon of the sport, Um, you know, to its detriment, I feel. Um, It's moved away from what it was, and you've probably seen people post pictures of uh, Supermoto 
and gone, this is PMX, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what it's turned into almost, you know. It, it is um, similar, and you do see moves. I went to the Manchester National indoor and watched that, and, you know, yep, it was good. Um, I don't know why the indoor events haven't got more atmosphere. For some reason, they have less. I can't explain that. I don't know why. Um, but, yeah, there's something there's something lacking, and I know – you know, BMX talk, we're doing like trying to do a signing thing with the pros. And there isn't that kind of pro, well, I don't want to say worship, but that, you know, you have to set these role models, don't you? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really seem like, you know, that you have that. You know, the parents come, the kid races, they go home, especially if you've got block racing. I don't know if you have that in the States. No. Um, you know, so all the age groups finish in the morning. And then, you know, it's 13 and over or whatever in the afternoon. So crews run the younger kids in the morning. So all the people from the morning have gone home yeah, to the hotel or whatever. So they aren't even there to to watch. And obviously that doesn't create a, a, an atmosphere. Um, if I, I had more time and we had better weather here, which we have at the moment, but that's unusual. But if I had more time and the funding and the the enthusiasm to do it and working with Tim, you know, I'd love to do a more dirt orientated event, uh, which wouldn't be old school. You couldn't, you know, use an 18 inch top tube bike, you know, uh, but it'd be like maybe, you know, more downhill and you couldn't run a power block. That thing would slide out, you know, it'd be, it wouldn't be like a cement track. uh, And, but it wouldn't be as extreme as, you know, those Woodward Supercross events, mm-hmm. you know, that involved with. They wouldn't be like massive chasms that you've got to jump over, but they'd be big ass jumps and, you know, just see how people like it. Uh, and maybe, you know, if that worked, you know, it become it could become a series. So if I had the time and the money, the inclination to do it, I'd love to see BMX have another branch if you will much like there is supercross and motocross and the two things crossover uh, and some people have got skills that are more appropriate to one than the other but uh what do you think of that idea no i i think that's what bmx struggles with there's not another option and i definitely not i think there's a little bit more in the us you know you can almost make it work there's enough pro-ams and if you can get creative and do some extra things a rider can actually race still on a, a regular a national style track in the usa bmx and, and do some other things and make it work but it seems like in europe really the only the only model that is coached talked about the tracks are built it's all about the olympics i think even more so than than anywhere and that's where i think mm-hmm. obviously we've, we've made the big mistake there's not that second option like okay if you want to do that that's fine um but you can also do this 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 way as well you know which is um could be yeah maybe more traditional bicycle motocross you know whichever way that uh yeah good 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 look you know so um yeah i think it's definitely lost and alan you're involved in and you have been again since day one in, in freestyle and you, you follow it sponsor it you're still involved you just said you had the fit team cruising through. So you obviously, um, you know what's going on in that side. And um, you can see racing's just kind of lost right now, isn't it? Well, I think there's problems in that, on that side of it as well, isn't there, Dale? Uh, we're living in very um, uncertain and changing times. 
Um, I think it's all about, I think, yeah, I think you're right. There's too much focus on, you know, on, on the Olympics and, you know, creating a facility or putting all the money into two riders just so you can get more medals and medals mean money um, and that gets put back into facilities. I, I understand that, but I think there's a great uh, lack of promoting the sport at a grassroots level and making it attractive to those younger kids because, you know, when I was growing up or when you were growing up, you know, what option was there? Like, you could only do motocross if, you know, you could afford to do that and that, a lot of people couldn't. This is the 70s and the 80s. And I or, think or you did, BM, you know, you, there was BMX, you know, there was Cycle Speedway, but there wasn't, mountain biking didn't exist. So you either did BMX or you did, like, football, rugby, cricket. Mm-hmm. It wasn't any other swimming, maybe, but they, that wasn't, you know, I don't remember swimming being, like, anyone saying, yeah, I do swimming. Right. Like, in the, <laughs> in the 70s or the 80s, it was, like, and just we... a thing you do at school. And I think you was, like, say, you was, say, we spoke about earlier on this podcast, creating a scene, you know, building tracks, importing the product, getting people together, traveling. Um but it was organic. It wasn't premeditated. Right. You know, it wasn't any part of a plan. <laughs> you know, I remember like, you know, uh, Chuck came over and this must have been later 81. Oh, it was Redditch. They had that Anglo-American Cup, which I won at Redditch. <laughs> and Chuck came over for it. And um, we just said, yeah, we're going to go to Southport. And we just shut. We just like, <laughs> we just like, and we had this like big coach thing and we just like closed and went there. Like imagine doing that today. You know what I mean? I was yeah. like, there's no one there to answer the phone. <laughs> right. We just, we just all drove off. So we weren't thinking of like, shit, we're running a business here. You know, we need to have someone at the phones or what if somebody comes to the shop and we're not open? Well, give us a bad review on Google. You know what I mean? That didn't happen. You just closed and off you went. So it was a much, uh, it was a different time and it was a much freer time. And obviously we weren't, you know, really, you wanted to do something, you just did it. We never, like, never booked a flight in advance to go to California. We would just go, yeah, there's a race this weekend, uh, like, you know, wherever, Pontiac Silverdome. <laughs> Let's just go. And we would, I'd just got a flight and go there and chuck and meet us at the airport, LAX, you know, where you walk through baggage claim and psh, off we went and we would drive to wherever it was or fly to, you know, Pontiac at the time. And you just did it. So you weren't... Uh, there was until, you know, we didn't have a diary, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, there was no like, you know, plan this, this weekend and that, you know, you just, everything just um, kind of fell into place and, you know, they were, uh, they were much freer times. I think nowadays because of schedules and everything, everything's really constricted. So there's not a lot of time to try to do anything uh, that's fun. And if it wasn't fun, you didn't do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um do do you get angry? I mean, like I say, you you you're there at the start. Yeah, my eyes, you're the you're the godfather, and many more. I'm I'm sure would would agree with me. Do you get frustrated, or was there a period where you just had to let certain things go, and uh, or do you still feel a little bit responsible for for you know? There's some positives from from BMX racing right now, and 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 yeah, we still love it, and we we're still you know we're still involved, we're still part of it. But there is there is there parts where you like it really kind of irritates you what's going on especially maybe like with, with british cycling you know you have no involvement with them I, I don't think so do you and you know um yeah we just you know no real lack of 
them guys even reaching out to you guys, the the history part, and then that's a whole nother subject as well, you know. So, what's your thoughts on all that? Uh, yeah, I, I I haven't really got a vendetta against them, like um, you know somebody else might have. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's hard to say. You know, it is what it is. You know, I hate to use that phrase, Dale, but you know, you can't do anything to be able to change it. Uh, the only thing, you know, is to maybe create an alternative. Um, but as I say, you know, and I did speak to a few, you know, riders and to a few pros who I knew uh, and sounded them out about this idea of maybe a track a little bit like four cross, but obviously wide enough, you know, to, to ride, you know, to put an eight-man gate on and kind of make it gnarly and not have a manicured surface and definitely no tarmac berms. And if you wanted to run clips, well, you know, that's fine. You could run anything that you wanted, really, uh, as long as it was 20-inch 20, uh, 20 wheels. And um, the, the response was unanimously positive um, without, you know, selling the event out to an energy drinks company or, or something. I still think, you know, that would be the way – to um, create uh, an, an alternative um, to what we have today rather than getting too hung up about. Because when you go back, you know, if you reverse engineer everything from the point where it was in the Olympics backwards, from today backwards, you know, it does really all come from, you know, the Eric Roop, Brian Lopes clip thing. You know what I mean? Uh, and obviously because of the clips, it went from the, to, you know, a more, um, you know, you couldn't put, you know, you couldn't just jam up the inside of a turn with your foot out and just do what Tim did to me at three sisters. You know, you, you had a more kind of follow the leader style and you can see, you can see track in BMX nowadays, can't you? In a turn. Yeah, you no, can it's. You can see track cycling, you know. In oh, absolutely, that. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost. And obviously, then we went to Tamat Berms, and you know, we had Tamat Berms because, especially in the UK, as you know, you know, rain and you get a, you know, you know, you'd almost need to bring back suspension forks for for a while, there, you know. Um, uh, you know, you needed Tamat Berms because you go down to the track and you know, go down to Copland, it had like rain for two nights, and then the bloody berms were knackered out, weren't they? Mm-hmm. So you had to get like the material out and the roller and do all the thing to make them rideable again. And obviously, once you've got Tamat Berms, that's you know, that that problem's eliminated, so less track maintenance. I, I get that, but um, that combined with the clip thing and then the style of riding uh, has definitely made the racing the racing not as good. Uh, you know, big, big because of it, uh, and uh, the, the tire width, Dale. That's <laughs> the thing that bugs me most. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, Morris Stromberg's what width tire is he on on the front? I mean, he ain't got a two two point one two five comp three on, has he? Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. No. And you know, London was a really good example of that. And I'm sure you can, you know, you can give me an example from last weekend. Because they're pumped up so goddamn hard, once they come into the first turn and somebody bumps somebody, there's so little of the tyre touching the tarmac. It's like, you know, there's a dude with a sniper rifle out there, like, knocking people down. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know how the guy crashed, but the guy that was winning the world, oh, probably because of that, the guy that was winning the World Cup a couple of weeks ago, the Dutch guy that was winning in uh, uh, last turn, last corners, just slid out. I don't know if that was a combination of, of a little well, bit of so, everything. But yeah, yeah, but I totally understand what you're saying, yeah. It's so high speed. It's like having a MotoGP bike, a bloody spa or something, and then putting like a, a flipping Honda Plaque moped tire on it. <laughs> And right. then you you go in like two hundred mile an hour, and right. then pump it up to two hundred psi. Guess what's going to happen? Yeah. So the the tires really do, uh, you know, make my uh, mind uh, boggle. Um, <laughs> and you know, guess where that's come from? Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to be on twenty three. We're going to be on twenty three, twenty three mil tires soon, aren't we? Yeah. It's. Uh... Yeah, sometimes it makes you it makes you wonder looking at the the, the philosophy of some of these um, yeah teams countries uh, what they. It's about if it saves. It's all about you know not wishing to uh, criticize them, but using you know um, one of the catchphrases incremental gains. Mm-hmm. What about and the for the betterment of the sport of of the uh, overall? And like I say, I. I get how, you know, they get funding, medals, you know, get funding. And I won't go on about all, you know, the other sports that don't get funding, you know, that I've seen uh, that really need it because they're in urban areas and everything else. But um, it just seems like, you know, um, we're living in a time where, you know, the rich get richer and, you know, tough shit for everybody else. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely turned elitist. You cannot... Not say it hasn't to just be that World Cup level, you know. It's uh, it's not like say you don't just rock up in a van and everybody piles out and <clears throat> races. It's well, not like that well, now. Stoke that the sport is you know so professional like that, and it looks great. Everyone's got the mirrored goggles on and everything, and it <laughs> you know, it looks you know it you know. Hopefully, kids would see that and say, yeah, you know, that's what I would I, I would want to do. But you know, the, there's a big um, disconnect between that and going down to your local track, isn't there? You know, so that's the uh, that's the other point that's been made, especially from the Olympics. Um, you know, people can't, you know, put, you know, two and two together. But having said that, I think, you know, the numbers in the UK, certainly are regional, regionals are, regionals are booming here, aren't they? You know, they're... Uh, Oh, well, the numbers they're getting, they're getting like as many as nationals, you know, and I think nationals are, are down a bit. Um, but, you know, regional events are fantastically uh, well, uh, well supported, uh, you know, and, and I'm assuming that's down to the to the clubs. And there is a lot of good as well, Dale. You know, people are, uh, you know, Josie, who McFarley rides for us, um, the, you know, doing the uh, doing the coaching and uh, helping these kids along and, and having a good coaching program. She's actually working for British Cycling now, doing coaching, not just, you know, BMX. But I think that is all the, all the bad stuff. That's some of the good stuff that they have done, you know, to be able to redress the balance rather than just say, you know, everything that, you know, the national governing bodies have done has only brought in medals and made, you know, the, it's all been spent on like three riders. Um, I think the coaching thing on a grassroots level uh, has been really good uh, and other sports are, 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 you know I, I know other sports are definitely envious of what cycling has done in that regard yeah no, you see that up and down the country obviously with, with CK Flash and Uncle Buck and I know there's people yeah. spread out all over the country doing good things for grassroots and I think that's people are starting to pay more attention to the grassroots here with the 
the beginner league in the US and what Donnie's doing and, and Mike Carruth. And it seems like people are finally identifying that we got to build, you know, ground up instead of where maybe the last so many Olympic cycles it's been like we've been trying to build it top end down. And obviously that's mm. just not worked. So build out of the future. And yeah. especially because, you know, you've got a really good tradition, the whole little league thing and everything. You've got a really good tradition of putting together a coaching and infrastructure uh, program uh, there that you know that the mod you know that the mold is already set, isn't it? Really, you just need to apply it to BMX. Yeah, and I think it also gives some of these riders a chance to to maybe make a living or to to do those extra things to to make it worth it, where they can actually you know not have to rely so much on you know say obviously prize money is tough right now in in BMX racing at least in the US and if you for these guys to get involved and you see it now they're getting involved in the coaching and stuff, so it's definitely got some some pluses as well. Alan, yes. let's, let, let's, let's finish it up on um, the old school movement because it's huge in the UK right now. Like I saying, we spoke earlier on the podcast, you was the first guy to put on a, the official first uh, old school event, which I, I did go to myself and Geth went on that rainy day. Uh, it's turned into a huge thing now. You've got the collectors and then you've got the, uh, the MK weekend, which I, I seem like it's like almost you have to pre-register for it. It's so big. Um, so yeah, give us your thoughts on uh, Milton Keynes, the old school movement, and uh, yeah, moving forward, what we can. Uh, what yeah, we can no, it's just um, yeah, it's it's weird. You've it's become a thing on its by itself because because I was you know racing the vintage motocross at the time, and I still am, and um, you know I, I took what um, I'd seen in that and just basically applied it to BMX. Uh, you know, but it was more racing focused than kind of collecting. And at the time, a lot of products were available because China had all that stock and they were distributors for SE and Redline and Haro. And they just had stuff on the shelf that had been sat there since cause basically BMX in the UK kind of for sales, you know, stopped in 1987, like just really ground to a halt. And, you know, we still had you know, you just couldn't sell anything. It was weird. And um, Shiner had all that stuff. So we had access to all that inventory. And just, you know, I remember putting a Hutch Hollywood pink one together, just all NOS out of the box, Hutch pedals, MX-1000 brake, Cashy Max Hero, all just, you know, brand new. And it was all new old stock, but it wasn't really collectible. You know, we just assembled it all. And uh, so, yeah, it was it was, you know, really super cool to do. And my dad was still around then and he came to the event and that was really great to see. And then we went on to do a second one, a winter one. We did the one the year after and we actually did a four round series with British Cycling as part of the national series. Uh, And, you know, like an old school event within the event. Uh, And there was one at Couple, which John Lee raced and um Mike Pardon won one riding the GT of ours over at um, where did they used to have the the, the Brits over Yorkshire Way Day? Like was it Harworth? Harworth, yeah, they had it there. I went there once. I think, yeah, yeah Harworth, Doncaster Way. Went long to... track. Remember how long that track was? Yes, yeah, oh, yes, a lot of straightaways, weren't they? A lot of uh, uh, turns and straights. Yeah, but it was good for an old school race, so we did that, and then we did one in Bournemouth, which was 2004, which I think is the last one, and by then. It became a life of its own, so we kind of stood back a little, stepped back a little bit, and let those guys, um, you know, get involved and, and do it. And then 
Then there was a little bit of race series. I know Preston did one for like an old school thing. But obviously, increasingly, the riders were getting older and more fragile and the tracks were getting less and less suitable to race the bikes on. So obviously it came to a point where you couldn't really race them anymore. Uh, and then it kind of and then there was a point where all the new old stock inventory evaporated uh, before the manufacturers uh, cottoned on to the fact that there was a market for it. And, you, you know, likes of, you know, Dicomp and, you know, Tangy and, you know, every other brand everybody could get their hand on. Um, so I've made a made a comeback either with retro bikes, uh, you know, with modern geometry, but like a classic look are literally just remaking the stuff, you know, from then. So when that happened, um, that made it affordable and accessible for a lot of people again and, uh, you know, really, you know, helped our business, you know, I've got to say. And then these ride-outs came about, didn't they, you know? So people would, like, restore a bike and then have one and then two and then 50 of them. Uh, and you couldn't take them anywhere and, you know, your wife would be going mad and blah, 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 blah. But then someone invented uh, a ride out, which is basically a pub crawl uh, via BMX. And um, now you can take your old bike out and people can see it and you can have a drink. And awesome, you know, uh, you know, they've done this thing at Cleethorpes for the last few years, uh, which has been amazing. You know, they've had Eddie Fiola come over. Uh, and that was um, Nick Swanick and, you know, Gary Fenwick, who used to ride for us and mm-hmm. rode for GT, were involved in bringing those guys over. And imagine, you know, let's go for a ride with Eddie Fiola, like just mental. So mm-hmm. uh, fun. And the MK thing, you know, we hadn't been for a few years and it was doing its own thing. And I'm like, you know, well, these are our customers. We should, you know, show our face there and support the event. Uh, and they've been nothing but fantastic, uh, you know, with us. And we've worked with uh, with More Large with that event. And it, it's really unique. I don't know if you know how it works. It, it's like... Uh, Not you know, really. I see all the pictures oh, and stuff it, online and, you know... Yeah, it's uh, like a club subscription thing. So you, you subscribe and then the weekend's kind of, you know, kind of it's put on for the members. So it, it isn't a um, someone make, trying to make money. It, it's like... A, like a, a democratic club thing you know the way it's done flipping fantastic and it's a bit like you know uh, there's this uh, punk music festival in blackpool every year called rebellion uh, which is massive and they get all you know dead kennedys and stiff little fingers and new bands and you know the whole thing and I've never been because, you know, I'm just like, oh, it'll just be like old people in like leather jackets that don't fit. And, <laughs> oh, it'll just be awful. And then a, a few years ago, you know, my friend David Manold, I've mentioned a few times, he, he had a spur pass and he's like, you should come, you know. And I went and, you know, just took it on face value for what it was. And I wasn't judging anybody and thinking, oh, this is full of shadows. And have these people got nothing better to do with their lives? And it was just ace. And that's what MK is like. And, and I've tried to tell this to Tim and say, you know, these people aren't all, you know, stuck up uh, assholes. It's a cross section of um, of society, normal people, some people who, yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're obsessive about, you know, that your brake cable, your diacop brake cable has got to be, you know, March 1983, if you're going to put it on an MRD Pro. What, <laughs> you know, but there's a lot of, normal really nice uh people as uh as well so you know it's it's an event that we you know we, we'd always be honored to uh to be able to uh support 
and um, yeah, so I'm, 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 you know, proud of, I'm proud of that. But Tim's pointed out a few times, you know, that, you know, while they will bring over Bob Harrow for the last couple of years and all these other people, um, you know, the this is in contradiction to your view of. Uh, you know, my generation, really. Mm-hmm. It's like people don't really know who, you know, they don't know who I am. They don't know who I am, Dale. <laughs> well, they should. They, you tell them. Yes, they should. And I, I think you guys definitely need more, um, or, or should. I know you guys are all humble and you, you don't, um, yeah, it, it's, it's. Uh, I think you guys should be, the history of, of British BMX should really be a bit more documented, better like it is. Here in the U.S., you've got, uh, you know, the, the ABA archives, the USA BMX, they have everything on everything, you know. You can literally fly over to Phoenix and just, just look at everything you ever wanted to and find anything out, you know. And, and obviously, a lot of those people are still involved with Gork and Cash Matthews and everyone doing that stuff. But it's a shame it's not happening in England, you know. And uh, we talked before the... Um, and it's not about giving each other awards or trophies you for this and tro- it's just like documenting the history properly you know like I say we've all got dribs and drabs of stuff you have ultimate knowledge and, and, and wealth of the, the start and you know there's so many other people around the country the magazine collectors and uh, different people that have, have got their own little history but it would be great to, to, to put something all together at one point when we've all got less time and just kind of really showcase what it was all about at the start you know so well, no, that that'd be uh, that'd be good, um, and you know maybe you know Craig Schofield, you know normally goes Charlie Reynolds is usually there, but it's like you know they're, they're under the radar, uh, and and you've also got to appreciate, um, and I do hear a lot of this, and I don't know how much how it's split. Obviously, you've got a lot of people who are attracted to that scene mm-hmm. who weren't really there. Um, either, you know, I mean, it's rare and I don't want to, you know, be negative, but we do, you know, people will ring us and say, yeah, old school BMX, which one's a good investment? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I'll say, well, you know, what bike did you have as a kid? Well, I never really had one. And that just kind of seems weird to me. Yeah. Uh, but I guess that's how when these things get so popular and people come at it from different scenes, you know, there's a whole connection with the the Volkswagen scene isn't there you know like if you go to a Volkswagen show and you've got one of those kind of camper vans you've got to have a BMX bike on the back it's kind of part and parcel of the of the deal I don't oh, really you know I have seen those guys on Instagram yeah you're right yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. so there is a big um, crossover from that so you are and the whole you know any and, and what is more iconically 80s than BMX mm-hmm Oh no! You, uh, you even see it on some of those shows. Those be you know back to the eighties shows and stuff. They'll show a uh, yeah. So it, it literally and... is as you know iconic as you know anything from 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 the uh, from the eighties. Um, you know, Space Invaders or whatever you can. I can't think right now, but and so people are drawn to it from that, and also um, you know. I guess worldwide, I mean, shit, you know, what have we all got to look forward to, you know? Yeah. So I think people are at the point in their life where they're like, God, how good was BMX? Especially if they, they're not like me and they've been like at the goddamn coalface of it for 37 years. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and going, 
wow, that was so cool. I'd just get my bike ride home, you know, from school and then we'd go and buy BMX Weekly and then we'd go home and put on Channel 4 and watch the Kellogg's and, and then go to Three Sisters and watch a race or race or, you know, there were great times. So who wouldn't want to, you know, replicate that era? And bikes are still, oh, this is turning into an advert daily. You can cut this out. You know, uh-huh. bikes are affordable to do. So, like, you want to do a classic car, you know, it's going to cost you a shitload of money, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. But, like, you know, just to get the engine rebuilt or something. But, like, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You could have the frame chromed. Do you know what I mean? So it's you can actually, you know, create something. And that's why you get a lot of people will build a bike, restore it, and then sell it because it's just the fun of being able to do it and chase down the parts. So I can totally get that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think a lot of it is just having, you know, I went on uh, in, in over here in, in California, there's a subway series. And I, I did one many years ago when it first started, but I did, did the first one I've done in a while, uh, just last weekend, a couple of weekends ago with Eddie King. And it's just about a lot of guys that just want to ride bikes, have fun, talk, they stop and have a beer on the way. And uh, like the yeah, 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 it's just kind of, uh, it seems like a social thing. And I see it. Yeah, I see it in the UK. It seems like just a bunch, bunch of older guys just having just having fun, hanging out, drinking beer and riding, having the same thing in common that the BMX. So I think it's... Uh, yeah. Without good. having the need to go onto a track at all and break your femur. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get it. Um, Alan, let's close it up. How does, you know, uh, people want to get hold of you? Alan's, uh, you like to say, you're still living it every day in the shop and your events and you still have a lot of passion just talking to you now, you can tell, and you still want it to always you know make it grow and 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 you just yeah you still still heavily uh yeah love for bmx so if uh, somebody wants to get in touch with you alan how to uh, how do we reach you well we have a website which is uh, alansbmx.com a-l-a-n-s bmx.com no other spelling obviously we should have uh, bought all those alternative domains at the time <laughs> but we didn't but don't go on alansbmx.co.uk whatever you do um and we're on instagram which is just at alan's bmx uh we're on facebook which is alan's bmx official uh you know instagram seems to be the way that you know we do most of our communication nowadays especially with the younger audience and uh you know we've got a good team that are always posting a real mix of uh, a mix of stuff on that so you know we've still got a bit of race stuff and um the uh, GT BMX Heritage deal that we're running, uh, that's got its own Facebook page. And the team have got their own Facebook page and Instagram page too. Uh, did you see the new kit that we just did, the 93 kit? I did, yeah. I see you guys posting it this weekend. It looks super cool because obviously that was, uh, that was uh, yeah, just part, I was part of it during that time. So I love looking at all that stuff, you know. So, uh, yeah, that was because we've gone back in time because we did that 99 kit from your era. And this yes. is the slide earlier, sorry, Gary Ellis. Uh, era yeah so when i i started in 93 so i tail ended that but i yeah i love anything that look you know from that that i mean i still a big fan of anything gt you know when you something you did you know so it's very cool very cool what you're doing and uh what have you got look forward what coming up this year alan any special events you say you're going to do the mk again you guys are supporting racing still anything else we need to know about before we hang up Uh, doing a local thing at a skate park at uh, beast ramps on the Saturday the 16th, I think it is, of June, and uh, that's a freestyle event, and we've got a uh, higher competition sponsored by Odyssey, and we've got a lot of other events, in kind inside events, but it's a bit more of a, a fun thing. It's an all-nighter, actually, 
Uh, needless to say, I shan't be staying up any later than 9 p.m. <laughs> myself. Uh, but that's a you know going to be a good uh, going to be a good event if anyone's from Manchester. And then we they've got a ride out in the daytime. Uh, we sponsor um, we sponsor this guy on, on SE who does the kind of D blocks wheelie thing called uh, Erratic Dominator. So <laughs> oh, England's got the D block, have you? You got, you got your, own, your own version. Yeah, yeah, but but um, no no uh, no dissing the no dissing the blocks crew. Uh, you know, Jake can really ride BMX, so he's doing a bunch of. Uh, he's always he's bent another another set of forks today, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, he he he's having a ride out in the in the daytime, and uh, yeah, so follow him on Instagram, and he's a really good, uh, really good uh, kid. Uh, and if you go onto our Alan's BMX Instagram, all the other freestyle riders that we that we sponsor have all got uh, links in the in the bio. So they're all uh, they're all uh, they're all cool guys, uh, and uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm you know the t- the uh, the GT team will be doing all the uh, be doing all the uh, all the nationals, and I've just been working on more products today. So those ninety three era shirts, we will have those uh, warning advertisement coming. We will have those available <laughs> to sell. this oh. season. They're not, they're not going to be team replica ones. They're going to be actual exactly because. We did them last year with all, and we have got WD40 as a sponsor, so Martin helped us and allowed us to oh, be able cool. to do it. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, but this year, we're going to make them exact replicas of the 92 ones, so they won't have our logo on there, and Renthal and ODI and Halo, they won't have all those sponsors on there. Hopefully, they'll just have Dino and uh, hopefully Amy, because that was yeah. the sponsor. Yeah, now I remember. Shirts will be exact replicas, but with modern materials. We also had uh, pants made for the team, which uh, I'm so proud of because, God damn it, uh, they took a long time to design. <laughs> and harking back to what I said previously, God damn, black shorts and like shin pads <laughs> already. So we went to a lot of trouble of, you know, making the pants right and redrawing the Dino logo as the Allen's logo. And it took a long time. But now I see the riders from the weekend with the kit on, I'm like, yeah, it was really worth it, and and they're really into it too. So uh, that's so, uh, and we've got you know a couple of older riders, but you know some really you know good uh, younger uh, younger riders too that I'm really uh, that I'm really proud of that that really get it because there's no point having somebody on that kind of team without uh, an understanding of the uh, an understanding of the sport, and you know GT was so um, iconic at uh, at that time. So yeah, really. Uh, Really, um, really pleased with that whole thing came out. Absolutely. Alan, it's been a pleasure. Lovely going down uh, history lane with you. And uh, we'll, we'll talk again. I'm sure we will uh, probably see you guys out. Uh, you probably come out to Reno this year, not Vegas, right? You normally come out for the bike show, right? Uh, well, I haven't done for a couple of years because, um, yeah, I mean, I'd just rather go to San Diego, Dale, really, uh, if I can help it. So, um, so yeah, uh, I'm not too sure. Hopefully, I was lucky this year. We, we got a bike loaned uh, for a vintage national at Paris. So uh, I'd love to be able to do that every year, really. And yeah. um, the, the first national next year is in uh, it's usually in Arizona. So uh, hopefully, we either do that or San Diego. But I really like uh, really like San Diego. So um, yeah, try to um, try to avoid uh, Vegas if I. Um, if I possibly can. <laughs> Sounds good. Alan, thank you very much, and uh, we'll talk to you all later. Thanks for listening, everybody. See ya. Well,